Welcome to the Wags of SCI podcast, where we discuss life, love, and caregiving after spinal cord injury. Hosted by Elena Polly and Brooke Paget. Let's take a moment to hear from our amazing sponsors. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Wishart Brain and Spine Law. Led by our personal mentor and lawyer, Robin Wishart, Wishart Brain and Spine Law is a uniquely specialized law firm located in Vancouver, British Columbia. They focus their practice on complex spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury cases. And they work with clients all over North America as advocates and a much needed resource in the spinal cord injury community. Robin and her team look at their clients differently than other firms. You're not just a case, you're a person with a family, a life, and a purpose. They are always looking for ways to help improve the quality of life for their clients by providing the support they need for their recovery, such as assisting with insurance and benefits paperwork, finding resources for home adaptations, setting up medical appointments with doctors and specialists, and making sure that their clients are doing physically and mentally okay. Wish Our Brain and Spine Law is proud to support WAGs of SCI. Robin is committed to helping clients and their families any way that she can because she wants you to live your life and not your claim. Your first consultation is always free. So contact them at brainandspinelaw.com and make sure to mention that the Wags of SDI sent you. This episode is sponsored by Rolling in Paradise. Rolling in Paradise is a disabled-owned and operated family business owned by Annalisa and John, specializing in adaptive equipment for an active lifestyle. John is a C4, C5 quad for 34 years and has been using adaptive equipment for many years. He hand cycles daily and has been in the adaptive equipment industry for over 20 years. Annalisa and John have been together since 2007 and they have two furry kids. They love to be outdoors, going to the beach, cycling, and any activities to enjoy the sunshine. They are proud to offer the following manufacturers. Madeline Handbikes, Sport On Hand Cycles, Reactive Adaptation Hand Cycles, Stricker Attachable Hand Bikes, Everyday Wheelchairs, including Tylite, Motion Composites, Hands-On Concepts and Colors, Power Assist Devices, such as Spinner G, ZX1, Smart Drive, and Freedom Tracks. And lastly, some accessories and other adaptive equipment, Easy Stand, Quadra Grips, Spinner G Wheels, Rojo, and Stimulite Cushions, and much, much more. You can contact Annalisa and John by going to their website at rollinginparadise.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Wags of STI podcast with your hosts, Brooke Paget and Elena Polly. Welcome, welcome. We have a special guest on today. His name is Dr. Mitchell Tepper. He's the author of Regain That Feeling, Secrets to Sexual Self-Discovery, brings a lifetime of first-hand experience with chronic conditions and disabilities to his work as a sexual sexuality researcher educator, coach, 
and self-proclaimed prophet of pleasure. He has a PhD in human sexuality education from the University of Pennsylvania and a master's in public health from Yale. Dr. Tepper, welcome. We are so excited to hear your journey and the amazing work you've been doing and a little bit about your partner and your WAG of SCI. Well, thank you. Thank you. You guys are famous, so I'm happy to be on your show. <laughs> well, I don't know if we're famous. I think I think the pleasure is all ours to have you on today. So thank you for joining us and taking the time out of your day to be here. So did you say you want to hear about my wife? Yes, of course. <laughs> uh, my wife. My wife's name is Cheryl, and we've been married for 35 years. Um. We've been going out for longer. I met her after I broke my neck. Actually, I met her initially before I broke my neck. She, uh, I met her before I broke my neck. I was at a party and her roommate was interested in my roommate. My roommate was the captain of the baseball team. And, you know, my, my introduction says I grew up, you know, with a chronic condition. I had Crohn's disease. And, uh, at the time I met her, I wasn't feeling well. So I would go to a party and stand against the wall with a, with a drink, but really just to try to be social, but I was having a lot of cramps and pain, et cetera. And, uh, so she was standing in the background, uh, of her roommate while her roommate talked, talked to me, asked me about my roommate. I'm like, go ask Neil. I, I just wasn't in the mood. And, and I just noticed her and that was it. And then I had to leave. Uh, school for an emergency um, uh, surgery uh, for the Crohn's. Mm, And uh, so I lost, basically lost a year of school and had what's called an ileostomy, a bag on my side temporarily. And so that was in April of, of 81. Uh, and then I went back to school, I guess in, in September, right? Uh, but in the, in the in between, after I had rehabilitated from, from my surgery, the doctor said, don't let the bag keep you from doing whatever you want to do. And I said, well, my life, my, my job back is a lifeguard. And so he signed my, my release and I used to work in, in the, um, called Long Island Sound, uh, but that my position was, was full. So I went to fill in at, at a lake and I, I dove in the water uh, to fix a buoy and I dove over a line in the water with some that was separating the deeper end. And I just wasn't used to, you know, my new body after the surgery and everything. And when I went over and I flipped over, I hit my head on the bottom and broke my neck. Oh, wow. So that led to the spinal cord injury. And then when I finally made it back to school, um, so it was a a new year, I ended up living on the same floor as my wife because it was the only accessible dorm, right? And so she lived, she lived diagonally and we ended up in a class together. And one day I was following her home to, to, when I figured out she does live diagonally. And, uh, and so we got to know each other after I broke my neck. And, uh, so that was in, 
was in March of 1984, a long time ago. And uh, I think by, boy, I, I think by the end of that summer, we were engaged. <laughs> so wow. it was, it was, it was pretty quick. I had never dated anyone even I, I, that long before I broke my neck. And I said, if I ever date anybody for six months, I'm going to get married. And <laughs> after five months, I asked her to get married. So it was uh, love at first sight. So she stuck with me for better or worse all these years. And we have a 25 year old son, Jeremy, and we could talk about that. I made him at home. I wrote an article about it called Making Babies, Fiber Stimulation and At-Home Insemination. So that I published an article about that. And I used to coach people to do that at home. Uh, and I've had some some people come back to me with pictures and success stories. So anyway, that's, that's, that's my significant other. Um, and she's, you know, been uh, in sick computers her whole life, you know whatever her current title is, you know, senior business analyst or something like that. So, so she's, she's really allowed me to have a lot of the freedom I, I have to, to do the kind of work I do to be the profit of pleasure. I call myself the profit of pleasure because my, my work is a calling, you know, I feel like this is, you know, something I was meant to do and it's not always profitable. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, it's good to have a partner who's got a, a regular income, you know, which allows me to be a little bit more flexible and, and follow what I love to do. That's wow. Amazing. She That's sounds really like cool. the real wag of SCI, the OG wag of SCI. <laughs> We're going to have to send her some, some merchandise. Hey, Brooke. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, for sure. You should send us your address afterwards. Um, you know, your school, it's really interesting because you do have your PhD. Can you get into your academic background and where were you in your academic career when you broke your neck? Cause you had mentioned that, you know, you were going yeah. to school before and then afterwards you lived in, in the dorms, which I'm trying to think about someone with a neck injury living in a dorm right now. Cause I lived in dorms for my first two years of school and I don't know how you did it. So <laughs> why don't we talk about your, you know, your, your, right. your education and then yeah, sure. how you lived in university. <laughs> I was pursuing a degree in business administration with a concentration in finance at a place called Bryant university in Smithfield, Rhode Island. So I was in my junior year when I left for the surgery. I still wasn't, had to finish my junior year when I went, went back. Um, and so I was pursuing that degree and she was, uh, you know, I thought they called them um, computer science major or what, whatever they called it at that time. Uh, and so the school, Bryant College, had been in a, a place called Providence, Rhode Island, in a, you know, an old New England town. But somebody uh, by the name of Tupper, if you ever heard of Tupperware, donated a huge track of property uh, in Smithfield, Rhode Island, outside the city. And they built a beautiful new campus. So the dorms were actually, they were four stories and they had suites. So you went into the suite and they had the restrooms, you know, like a stalls and et cetera. Uh, and then three double bedrooms. So the dorms were all accessible. There was an entrance uh, on the side where the laundry rooms were. And I had um, 
uh, a helper. The school paid a helper to help me get in the shower. So there was a shower and we put a seat in there and uh, there was an accessible stall. And, and so, and then the classes, it was a new building. So there was an elevator. So I was able to attend classes. And at the time I had, uh, I used a Amigo scooter instead of a power wheelchair and, and I had a manual chair, but I went to class back and forth in, in the scooter. So I did finish that degree in, uh, and I tried to get a job, but even though I graduated summa cum laude with the 3.98 average, I was not able to get a job as someone, you know, 1984 with, uh, with, with quadriplegic, uh, you know, it was only after like third or fourth interviews that I would decline and my friends with less, <laughs> lesser grades were getting jobs that I figured, uh, <laughs> this is, uh, I kind of accepted that the fact that I was being discriminated against. Uh, but I did end up with a job in banking, thanks to my mother, who was a teller and gave my rejection to her boss and said, look at my son's college education and, and look, you know, he's been declined. You know, this yeah. isn't right. And so I got hired after that. So I did a stint in banking. But at that time, I was getting more and more involved with at the time it was called the National Spinal Cord Injury Association. Um, which is now called the United Spinal Association, but I was very active. I became an officer and eventually uh, the president. But through my involvement, uh, some of the people on the board uh, were from the Yale School of Public Health. And the Yale, had, Yale School of Public Health had done uh, a research program in the use of um, a medication to keep... Uh, they would give you an injection of the steroid in your neck at the time of injury to reduce the inflammation and to reduce the, the negative outcomes. So there were people at the School of Public Health, you know, involved in the spinal cord injury world. And uh, they guided me back uh, from where I was. I had left banking because I wasn't happy. And I did a short stint in durable medical equipment sales, which, which I enjoyed a lot. I was in a major rehab hospital and fitting people with chairs, but the company I was working for was going out of business and the folks from Yale kind of guided me back to the program in public health. So I got a master's in public health at Yale with my ideas. I wanted to run a rehab hospital, you know, and I did get that degree. Uh, I was not impressed with the time I spent as an intern in the hospital, it's because at the time, uh, in, in the United States, it probably doesn't translate into Canada, but, uh, there were, the rehab was becoming more like a business. So in administration, I didn't feel much different than, than I did in banking, right? I wasn't close to people like I was when I, sold wheelchairs. I, I loved selling wheelchairs because I was with newly injured people and I could, you know, share information about the National Spinal Cord Injury Association and such. But mm -hmm. for my... Be like a like yeah. peer support sort of and, and have yeah. that, right? Yeah. Right. So I was basically, that was, I was more excited about that than fitting people in wheelchairs, you know. Sure. Uh, bringing, I was bringing the message to people right in the hospital, you know, before they even left. So... Anyway, I had to do a master's thesis and I ended up doing it on 
a national survey in the United States of um, the first 500 people on the list of the National Spinal Cord Injury Association listed as a spinal cord. So I didn't get, you know, other people on our list. And I asked them about the sexuality and education, uh, sexuality, education and counseling they received in rehabilitation. And I took the survey I developed to the, to the rehab hospital and they said, no one's going to answer your questions. You know, this is too sensitive and you're asking too personal information. And I took it back to my thesis advisor who was a, a nurse uh, from World War II in a very John Thompson, very in public health. He's, he's you know, a, a giant. And I said, they told me that no one's going to answer my questions. He said, don't worry about it. He said, if they don't answer your questions, we'll write up a paper on why this is a sensitive topic. So I was like, I could do a research of why the this joint outpatient facility between Gaylord Hospital, that's the major rehab hospital in Yale, is failing. He said, no, do what you like, you know. And so he gave me permission to do this. And I got nearly a 70% response rate, which was unheard of. And this is back, you know, in the in in the 80s, early 80s. So there was no internet, right? So I had to copy it and mail it and put, you know, stamps and people had to fill it out and mail it back. And I got letters and questions and I said, this is what I should be doing. And so instead of going into working in rehab, I went and I pursued a PhD in human sexuality education. And that was at the University of Pennsylvania. So it was a pretty unique program. And, uh, you know, from there, I got to do research with top researchers in the world at um, Drs. Beverly Whipple and, and Barry Komisarek. And that was on uh, orgasm in women with complete spinal cord injuries. And then I followed up with my own research on pleasure and orgasm in men and women with spinal cord injuries. So I was able to take you know, what we had done in the laboratory and follow up with men and women outside of the lab with both quantitative, you know, survey questions and qualitative research asking, you know, dozens of people to tell me their stories. And so, you know, I've learned a lot from that and I've been sharing, sharing that information. Also, while I was working on my PhD, I was funded by our Paralyzed Veterans of America. I developed a curriculum for training health professionals. Uh, providing comprehensive sexual health care in spinal cord injury rehab programs. So for a very, very long time, I've been focused on sex and spinal cord injury and men and women and dealing with partners and wives and husbands and uh, focused on the pleasurable aspects of sexuality. This is, this uh, conversation is, is, really amazing so far. And I'm sure that, um, a lot of our listeners right now are experiencing like a jaw drop, which I'm experiencing (laughs) right now Um, (laughs) because here's the thing, you know, in our community, we deal with a lot of, um, lack of motivation caused by, you know, the injury and the anxiety and depression that comes with it. Um, and just like not being able to find your purpose because a lot of you know, a lot of the men that sustain this injury are fairly physical creatures. Um, and so it's the transition from not being able to use your body to having to develop other sides of your personality and your mind. It can be very challenging for a lot of men. Um, 
So having you on is really cool because you're like literally the prime example of someone who has not let their injury gotten in the way of their academia or what they want to pursue as far as like literally changing the world and changing people's minds. And, you know, your list just goes on and on about how much you've contributed as far as, you know, sexual sexuality and academia to the community. And it's just really, really inspiring. And, um, did you, did you ever feel like you were experiencing some resistance or did you always just go with the flow and kind of let your mind take you where, where you needed to go? Uh, well, there were no easy paths. Um, you know, that's why I call myself also a sexual entrepreneur by default. You know, so I took uh, the business skills. And as I said, I had difficulty getting a job. I did get a job in the bank, but it wasn't what I wanted. I got the master's in public health. Uh, you know, financially, I, I broke my neck at work. So I, I get a subsidy from our workers' compensation. So between that and my wife's work, you know, it wasn't so so bad financially. So it allowed me to go on and get the PhD. But I thought if I got a PhD, that I'd get hired, but no one hired me with a PhD in sexuality that focused on disability. I'm not a medical doctor and I'm not a psychologist. So no rehab hospital would hire me because I'm just an educator, you know, and they don't, in this country, you know, we don't really get reimbursed for education. So whenever there's a job for a PhD, it's for somebody who could do billable hours and I couldn't do billable hours. So I never was able to get a job in the VA, in the, in, in the general rehabilitation. I had a stint doing research in our Veterans Administration Hospital, but once again, they didn't have a position permanently. It was funded by a grant for someone with a PhD who did what I did. So I just, I don't know, like I said, it was a calling and I felt like this is what I should be doing. And I set up in 1996, which was in the early days of the internet, a website called sexualhealth.com. And fortunately, and it was to make information on sexuality and disability available at the click of a mouse, which was novel in 1996. And it grew to be one of the largest domain level sexuality information site in the world. You know, I had hundreds of thousands of visitors a month and I had to make sure I kept the focus on sexuality and all types of disabilities. It wasn't just spinal cord injury, but everybody came without disabilities too, <laughs> you know? And so uh, I, I, I sold that in 2010 to a telemedicine company with the idea of doing e-counseling, you know, like what's happening now since, since COVID, everybody's used to it now. Uh, but unfortunately they, they took the company in a different direction and now, now it doesn't, exist. So I, I, I've ran into barriers in actually getting a job. Uh, but because of the level of subsidy I got through breaking my neck and through my wife working and just making some good investments, you know, in real estate as far as our houses and stuff like that. Um, I've been able to follow what I love to do. Um, and it has, you know, there, there are times, you know, when I sold the company, uh, and, and there are times I've worked, uh, I moved to Atlanta from Connecticut when I did get a job, uh, at Morehouse School of Medicine, working for our former Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. David Satcher. 
in the center of excellence to promote sexual health and responsible sexual behavior. And so he saw the need uh, for more focus on on sexuality and disability and, and brought me down to Atlanta. So that was also what we call soft money. It was grant money and it only lasted five years. So, but it was a great five years. I, I got to work for one of my, my heroes, my public health heroes. It gave me a, a more of a national platform than I already had. And it led to some of the work I'm doing right now with injured veterans. And, um, so we could talk about that later. So, so yeah, I, I ran into resistance. I thought I ran into resistance relationship wise early on, <laughs> you know, but in retrospect, I got married pretty soon after I broke my neck. So it wasn't as much resistance in, in retrospect as I thought. This is, this is cool because you said something really awesome. You, you, you talk about how you just kind of followed what you'd love to do and the doors just kept opening from there, which I think is so important because there's a lot of guys out there that are listening and women who don't know what they want to do. And, um, I, I'm sure you can agree with me when I say that if you follow what you love and you kind of let that take you where you need to go without being fearful, that you'll always, uh, accomplish big things. And I think you're, you're a prime example of that, which is, is really, really inspiring. And it's also, I'm sure Elena has a lot to say about this too. I, I find it really, really funny. Elena and I are, are both on a panel for a study and it's interesting that you talk about, you know, there's no money in educators and this and that, and, and, you know, it's the researchers that kind of get the short end of the stick. Cause it's very, very true. Um, our society <laughs> runs, <laughs> runs on, you oh. know, the people that are the actual doctors and the actual this and that, and the psychologists and their billable hours, but, but they rely on, and our entire society is set up on the backs of the educators doing all of this research so they can do right. their jobs. It's just really interesting. Right. Right. Elena. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and so you, I got, I got a PhD, right? And so you get, and and it, you know, you get the media contacting you all the time, especially when I had sexualhealth.com. and so you've got just young folks, you know, just right out of school, interviewing you, and everybody's writing articles and books based on what you did, and they're yeah, getting exactly. paid every time they're interviewing you or writing, and I, and I'm not, but you know, I just wanted to get the word out, so it's like. Okay, this is how you get information disseminated by making yourself available. So mm -hmm. it, it is very interesting. Wow, you've done so much. You're such an incredible human being with just so you've just done so much. Like Brooke had said, you've contributed so, so much. And and um, it's just it, I don't know. I don't even have words for this. It just uh, you just have so much passion to give and to help and and uh, to help people outside of you know yourself, which is incredible. And that's truly what the world is should be about. That's what life is really about, isn't it? Yeah. And um, so you had mentioned, and this is really fascinating. How did you get into the work um, with veterans? And can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, in 2006, I was invited to speak at a Road to Recovery conference for seriously injured veterans. And some of them were still military. They, they hadn't transitioned out, but, you know, just let's call them veterans. And I was invited because of my expert expertise on sexuality and disability. And so these folks, there were a lot of folks with uh, 
burns that resulted in not only burns, but amputations. There were people with, uh, you know, lower limb injuries. There were people with what we call, you know, complex blast injuries with lower limb injuries and genital injuries. Uh, and, and, you know, from, from really going over IEDs, landmines, uh, there were some spinal cord injuries, but, but not as many, you know, mostly from sniper gunshots, you know, to the neck or went through, you know, their, 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 uh, you know, armor, not their armor, but their, um, bulletproof vest, you know, found a way through here or there. So anyway, there were families, you know, couples, individuals, and they were just hungry for information. And I just felt like this affinity towards them. And I just wanted to continue to help after that conference. So I spoke at that conference a few years, but the headlines, uh, I remember in 2006 were failed intimate relationships were the leading cause of suicide in the military. And I wanted to kind of tackle that, right? So people were looking at the signature injuries of the war, which were traumatic brain injury and post-traumatic stress. And so people were trying to treat these things, but they weren't treating the relationship. And so that led me to um, 2008 through, you know, the permission of Dr. Satcher and the help. I, I led a conference in this country called Wounded Troops and Partners Supporting Intimate Relationships. And we were able to bring a hundred of the most powerful people, you know, in the country together in a room, you know, related to military and veterans. So we had the Department of Defense, the VA, a uh, big research corporation, RAND Corporation. We had people from the government who were sat on committees. Uh, we had so people who could, you know, make policy, people who could fund programs and people who could implement programs. So it was a, a public private kind of think tank. And I got some of the greatest people uh, to speak. And, you know, from there, uh, I was asked to help our, our veterans administration, uh, develop some relationship programs. We developed relationship retreats, uh, for, for injured folks. And I had met people that were doing well despite their, their disabilities. And I wanted to tell their stories to counter, counter the narrative. And so, um, came up with the idea of love after war. And, um, so I just finished a documentary. I, I interviewed six couples. I needed to cut it down to five to create under an hour so I could put it on our public broadcasting system. So I'm le leaning towards or working towards getting it on PBS in the United States. And so there, you know, the five couples that are, are there have a range of disabilities. One has a, two actually have a spinal cord injury. One, a spinal cord injury, like most people imagine he's in a wheelchair. The other guy with spinal cord injury, uh, his biggest issue is post-traumatic stress, but he was also doing a lot of jumping and had a lot of orthopedic injuries and ended up actually, you know, with a fractured neck and also a fractured tailbone, which he, they actually removed. So he had all these spinal injuries that resulted in things not very visible. He had a little drop foot, 
but he had pain and he had incontinence, you know, and some erectile dysfunction. So he has a spinal cord injury too, but he was actively serving, you know, and, and fighting with, with those injuries. So he wasn't, you know, paralyzed or using a wheelchair. Uh, and then I have somebody who's 85% burned and a woman who uh, experienced sexual trauma and a guy who got shot through the face was blind. And so, you know, these folks talk about, you know, how they went from being basically, I'm going to call it sexually devastated at the time of injury. You talked about partners, you know, with lack of motivation, anxiety, depression, you know, these, these men and women had it all right. Uh, to being happily in love. Right. So I wanted to tell their stories and show that as a positive uh, example based on real people to all the other people who are struggling. So now I'm in the process now of trying to disseminate that for Veterans Day this year. I'm going to be offering a, a screening, like a pre-screening that will advertise through through Facebook and uh, another company called Rally Point, which is like a face, Facebook for military people in this country. Uh, and so that's how I, I got into it. Uh, you, know, you know, I just wanted to tell stories of people who are have won the battle for love. That's so awesome. And that's, it's interesting because there's such a parallel as to like why we started our group um, with what you're talking about now. Cause you know, as hard as it is and as terrible as these injuries are, um, this kind of like devastation when you're literally on your knees, sometimes literally like on the floor <laughs> is uh, such a teacher and it can be such a teacher. And um, like, some of the darkest moments of people's lives are when they truly understand what real love and light is um, after having experienced real darkness. And so we like to look at these kind of situations like that. And, you know, we got a lot of, um, we got a lot of uh, flack when we first started this group because we were accused of, you know, having rose colored glasses um, or trying to like make things not as they are. And it's like, no, 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 we're, we're not trying to like bypass these dark moments and, and these horrific injuries and these life changing situations that just completely put you on your face. Literally. Um, we're trying to show something different and have you think about it differently, much like what you were talking about with, with your, um, your documentary and what you wanted to right. show and what you've done with your research is on the other side of that polarity of devastation is just, this is possible. This is what's possible. And you can right. experience love in such a way that is so profound and life-changing that, you know, if I could be blunt, not many people get to experience in, in their lifetime, in this lifetime. Yeah. And you said it so beautifully. Uh, what I say is that the film is, in its essence, it's really a story about compassionate love, you know, and compassionate love is, is, is loving someone else when they're not loving you back, you know, it's, real love. it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's loving your partner who you, you knew. And, and maybe if you were with that partner before their injury, it's, it's, you know, there's different dynamics based on before or after injury. But like in this case, you know, to Sombra, one of the women, she both, is military and experienced sexual trauma, but is Casey's wife, who's the guy with PTSD and the orthopedic 
spinal cord injuries. And, um, and she talks about that, you know, about coming, coming through it. But, you know, but you see in some of the stories about back when of how difficult it was and how, what a struggle she was of trying to maintain her marriage. And, and, you know, that because of the PTSD, there was some acting out from her partner against the children. So she tried to keep her kids safe. And she talks about just going in the closet, you know, so this is a full go woman, right? Going in the closet and just crying her eyes out and then coming out and putting on her game face, you know? Um, but now, I mean, they, you'll hear from both of them in the film, how their, their, their intimacy is deeper than ever. You know, they don't have sex as frequently you know, because they describe themselves as like rabbits before stopping wherever in the car. And, but it's 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 deeper, more meaningful and, and more satisfying for both of them, though. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, if you go through the tests, right, and you make it out on the other end, yeah, things can be actually better. I mean, it's only recently that we hear about post-traumatic growth. Um but like I've got this line I've been using is like, you don't have to break your neck to be a great lover, but you can learn a lot from somebody who has. So we have ideas about sex and, and the way it should be that drummed into our minds, right? Through the media and representations that are not at all realistic or, or representational, you know, and very few people can kind of meet, meet that. You know, like I asked my wife, it's like, does anyone on TV ever have sex in a bed? Everybody has sex standing up, right? With the woman against the wall, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. maybe it's against the locker. I mean, I don't want my back against the, the thing bumping out in the locker, you know? Um, uh, and I don't want my ass on a, uh, excuse me, can we say that on the radio? Uh, yes, of you course. know, <laughs> on a, on a, on a, on a concrete step <laughs> while right. I'm having sex, you know? Um, so yeah, you know, this stuff is always quick and passionate, you know, ripping each other's clothes and throwing each other around, but in the heat of the know, moment, <laughs> heat of the moment. And it's also no one measures it, but it's always over in seconds. <laughs> right. So, so yeah, but you can learn a whole different way of, you know, making love and, and, and also pleasure. And, and, you know, I've, I've shown that people, even with complete injuries, can experience orgasm. And we look at orgasm, especially since we're talking about wives and girlfriends of spinal cord injury. So in, in men, we often learn about ejaculation and orgasm. We use it simultaneously, but they're actually two, two events that in an able-bodied young man generally happen together. So we don't usually separate orgasm you hear women talking about orgasm you hear men really talking about ejaculation you know how strong how far how much you know and um you wouldn't believe i mean when i was running sexualhealth.com i got questions and not these aren't from men with spinal cord injuries these are general men and the top questions are about the questions about their semen you know about it thickness about its color about its smell everybody was wondering if they were normal and if they were you know ejaculating in the right way then you, you you'd be surprised but but it it is you know a big focus of, of men's sexuality um that i, I wrote a, an article for new mobility magazine called 
the ejaculation affirmation uh, about why it's so important for men with spinal cord injuries to pursue ejaculation, even though it may kill them, you know, through a high blood pressure and a stroke if you have, you know, uh, uh, prone to autonomic dysreflexia. But it's, it's the, you know, it's kind of the spreading your seed, right? So it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's your future. It's, it's, you know, the sign uh, that well, there's, there's pleasure connected with it. Right. Uh, but it's also the sign to your partner that you've been pleasured. So when I was doing my qualitative research for my, my study, yeah, one of the things came up is, you know, and that that's where I got the ejaculation affirmation idea from is that, well, how do I know if I pleased him if he didn't, if he didn't come. Right. Which is, brings people in that question I get what a even when I'm working with like military wives uh who their husbands don't have spinal cord injuries but they're on medications and they say doc what do I do if he can't finish so I know we're getting off off a little bit from what you asked but I think there's an important thing that we understand is that we all learn sexual scripts right from, from from birth right so in in the in the united states i don't know if you know what what carries through north america uh, but there's a rhyme that kids sing you know uh, say like mitch and cheryl up in a tree k-i-s-s-i-n-g first comes love then comes marriage then comes jeremy and the baby carries does did that rhyme? Do they have that rhyme up in Canada? They do. They do. And you sang it so beautifully. <laughs> so, I mean, <laughs> that that is a script. It's a script that's changing, right? Because it's love and marriage doesn't have to come before the baby carriage anymore, right? Uh, and then there's the don't stop there, whatever, or stop right there before you go any further. It's the baseball analogy. I don't know if you remember Meatloaf. <laughs> You better stop right there. Anyway, the baseball analogy goes first base, second. You know, did you get to first? Did you get to second? Uh, and so first base is, is, is touching and second base is kissing and third base is fingering and a home run is intercourse. And so in the United States, baseball is a, you know, big pastime and, and that's a United States, uh, script that we learn. So sex becomes very goal orientated towards ejaculation and orgasm and if you can't do that a lot of people give up they why bother starting if i can't finish they use that why should i start if i can't finish so if your script for sex ends with the guy ejaculating even if the woman hasn't had her orgasm if that's what ends sex and and you can't ejaculate it leaves people confused so you know we really need to learn different different models and and so we i promote you know which my colleagues promote a more pleasure or non-goal directed uh interactions where you don't need intercourse or orgasm you know to to have pleasure right so we, we really try to focus on the pleasure and it doesn't mean you can't have orgasm you can't have intercourse you can't ejaculate and, you know, there is a protocol to help men learn to ejaculate, which a lot of men would be able to do. Uh, but it's, um, 
you know, sometimes, you know, it takes vibrators and medications and sometimes you have to manage extended autonomic dysreflexia. And so a lot of guys still pursue it as often as they can. Uh, but you could also learn to have orgasms without ejaculation. And, um, and that, you know, once you experience that, uh, you, you know, this, you get the satisfaction without having to go through all the work, you know, of, of, of trying to, trying so hard to ejaculate. So, you know, if we could get guys focused and, and partners, you know, if, if your partner says, I'm satisfied, I mean, that's satisfaction is very relative. It's very qualitative, you know, uh, and so it, it's a matter of trusting your, your partner. So we're all kind of trained to be sexually insecure in that. At least in the United States, we don't get good sexuality education. We don't teach about the pleasurable aspects of sexuality. And then the media makes you feel insecure about your sexuality, right? So you could buy a car, so you're more attractive, or you could buy makeup, right? So you're more attractive. So they, in the marketing, I've been there. I've been there with a company interested in sexualhealth.com way back when, but they ask, where's people's pain, right? And so because people are insecure about sex, they exploit that and then they try to sell you something. So when we're with a partner, we want to satisfy a partner, right? And so if you feel like you can't satisfy your partner, then sometimes people walk away because they feel inadequate. So I hate to see couples break up because of, of that issue when each of them might be satisfied, but they're measuring themselves against some other, some, some other thing. And it isn't really a good measure for, no. for pleasure and satisfaction. And there's, there's like so much here that we could get into. Like there's so much here um, that you just mentioned. Like, I mean, we have a private discussion group on Facebook and obviously the number one thing that we get posted um, daily pretty much is, how can I help my partner ejaculate? Um, he hasn't either tried anything or we're just getting started or like we want to eventually have a baby. So mm -hmm. that's like literally every day, right, Elena? Like people post this every single day. And um, that's a big, that's, that's number one. And in fact, when we did um, reach out to our, we did like a little question box on our Instagram for our audience. And that was the number one question is yeah. people want to know exactly how do we get down to success? Yeah, that's how they measure success. Yeah. yeah. It's so individual too. Every injury is so different that it's right, really right. hard. Like all the women comment with their experiences, but nobody, almost nobody um, comments about other ways to achieve sexual satisfaction besides ejaculation. Cause that's almost like, Oh, we don't want to go there yet. We want to try everything that we can right. first to do it the old fashioned way. So like, okay, let's just say that like Elena and I are asking you a question about, let's just say where you're interviewing us for a second. We're like, okay, well we want to know like what, you know, what is your best advice for starting down that journey? Say I wanted to have a baby eventually and my husband hadn't ejaculated yet. What would you recommend as far as like tips from what you've seen with other couples to kind of get started on that, or even like with your yeah. with yourself? Uh, absolutely. And and so, and what I do coaching, and if people want to focus on ejaculating first, I help them chase down that avenue first, right? And then 
you know, as they do that, they become more open to other aspects too. So, and I, you send me an email afterwards and I'll send you a couple of papers, both the article I wrote called ejaculation affirmation, which covers both fibro stimulation to elicit ejaculation and uh, e-stim electrical stim, which, you know, is there's less science as far as the safety of that. Um, but based on, you know, discussion groups, uh, and that's what uh, kind of inspired me to write the article. It was called electro nut busting was the, was the thread. Uh, you know, it's, it's a lot cheaper to buy a $35 tens unit. Uh, and, and people were getting more success even in the area of folks that, that weren't getting success with the vibrator, but let's just stick with the vibrator for now. And, and the protocol I had, you know, I wrote a, it, it wasn't my protocol, but it was developed in, in Canada. Uh, and the paper, uh, there's a paper that's published and I'm on one of them with also with Stacey Elliott, who we mentioned before, yes. uh, but Fre- Frederica Cortez, I don't I hope I, I said her last name correctly. Um, uh, but Courtois, uh, but anyway, so let, let me just basically say the protocol they use. So they start right in the hospital and they ask, uh, men to basically, uh, masturbate to see if they have any, uh, success in ejaculation. And if there's no success with just the hand alone, uh, then they add vibro stimulation. So generally, I mean, there's medical vibrators. One is called the FertiCare and the other one is called Vibrect. And I think that the, the folks up in at the British Columbia Rehab uh, Society may, may, uh, I know back before they had these two vibrators, they, they made their own. They souped up yeah. a vibrator. Yes, they do have them. And, and so, so you can maybe get one through, through there because the, the other ones are, are quite expensive. Uh, but there's, there's two things about them. And I personally was able to, uh, ejaculate using an over the counter big muscle vibrator. So there's, there, and when you're looking at a vibrator, there's two things. One is called the frequency is how fast it vibrates. And usually, uh, those bigger ones, really all the vibrators right now are quite, quite strong, but you get something with an adjustment like a, a rheostat. So you could, tweak the, the intensity of the speed of the vibration. And the other is called peak to peak amplitude. It's how far the head moves. So on the Ferticare, the medical one, those two things have very, you know, good adjustments and it's very, very powerful. But if you had one of those long handle muscle massagers and, and you put it on the, uh, the frenulum of the penis. So um, whether, I guess if you were circumcised, uh, it would be the underside of the penis, uh, you know, where the shaft meets kind of the V part of the head. Um, and if you're uncircumcised, it would be the same area. Um, I don't, you don't have to pull skin back or anything. So you would, you would apply the vibration, you know, to, to the penis. And if that didn't work, and, and I won't get into how many minutes to try on and off. I'll, I'll send you the article that you can put on your post in your Facebook page. Uh, they add a, a medication called Midadrine. And Midadrine is like Sudafed. Uh, and so it's, it's kind of, 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it ramps up your, your, your blood pressure. I take it when my blood pressure is low, you know, so I, I get a lot of drops in my blood pressure. And instead of having to, you know, lay down and wait for a while, I'll take a, a pill to, to boost it up. Uh, and so with the combination uh, between the, the masturbation, the vibration, and the medication in the rehab, they were getting close to 90% success. Uh, of getting guys to ejaculate. So, um, the, you know, so there is usually it's easier with the more complete higher injuries, which is counterintuitive to people, but it has to do with how much of the sacral thoracic spine is intact. So it has to do with a reflex system that works off of your thoracic area between T10 and, and L2. So guys with injuries around T12 are sometimes the most difficult to treat, like for ED, because the erection and ejaculation, the, the levels above T10 and higher, they get the stronger reflex erections. The lower level injuries, and they're usually marked by more flaccid paralysis. So you know, I'm I'm a quad and my legs are quite bulky between spasms and FES. Uh, someone with a lower injury uh, will lose most of their muscle bulk. So people who have a lot of, um, of, of, of muscle loss uh, in their in their legs, uh, no no spasms, generally uh, aren't getting reflex erections, and they're more difficult to treat for both that and ejaculation, even though they may get more aroused, they may get more blood flow to the genitals. Uh, so they may get engorgement without a good erection and they may get some seepage of semen, but not outward ejaculation. So some of the, what I talk about orgasm is not dependent on level or completeness of injury, but erection and ejaculation are. So there will be differences you know, based on level of completeness of injury. Okay, so we do have to look at the medications people are on because if people are on uh, medications uh, for spasticity, right? Um, so, uh, you know, especially baclofen, that will affect the ability to get and keep a good erection and to ejaculate. And also medication for depression will make it more difficult to uh, keep an erection and ejaculate. So, you know, it's, it's, it's the spinal cord injury, but it's also the medication, uh, that, that's going on there. So, you know, we really have to look at the total picture. Um, and, and that's it. And for fertility, if you want to have a baby, you know, there's ICSI, you know, the intracytic plastic sperm injection. They, they take the sperm directly from, directly from your, 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 your testicles and they, and they inseminate the partner. So, you know, if someone wants to have a baby with their own genetic material, it's possible even if they can't ejaculate. So, you know, I like to take the pressure off of that, you know, because if your goal is to have a baby, that's one thing. So we can get there even whether you, if you can't ejaculate, we could still get there. Uh, if your goal is to ejaculate, you know, just to experience something you lost, well, you know, if we could get there, fine. If we can't, doesn't mean you should give up on your sex life. Yeah, for sure. Um, speaking about the, um, 
ejaculation process and like the journey with that. Cause I know it takes like a really long time for some people to figure it out. And a lot of them don't even know what they're doing really. So they give up too soon. Like Elena, you've noticed this too, right? Where on like the private group, like women will post that they're just skipping right to IVF instead of even Mm -hmm. trying it. Right. They just go to IVF and they do a fundraiser and they do this. And I'm just like, is that necessary? I don't know. What's your opinion on that? Well, in the United States, when I was trying to update my article and find the places that were doing the Viberstan, they had skipped that and they were going right to IVF too. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's more Very expensive. It's more expensive. So folks who don't have access, you know, I still, you know, you could take, you know, that collect the, the, the ejaculation if you're successful and into a cup. That's what I did and use a syringe to inseminate your partner and and you could have success with intervaginal the next step would be interuterine and that's a little more difficult to teach somebody to do at home you know with a with a catheter and get it through the the os you get it really into your uterus that usually takes more intervention but yeah i think medicine wants to not take all the time you know so my process you know out of maybe 18 months Maybe I got three good ejaculates over that time. And we had started to go into the hospital for procedure. And uh, and we got lucky, you know, like after 18 months of doing these, first trying to get the ejaculate and then with the dissemination. So it was, I guess, about our third successful intravaginal insemination, which led to our 25-year-old we have right now. That's very cool. Very cool. Thank you for sharing your story. Yeah. And uh, like you said, you know, a lot of people don't have the time. They don't want to wait. They don't want to try things. And, you know, the media and marketing does a great job to present other, I guess, uh, courses of, of getting pregnant, such as IVF, which is, you know, it's it's so hard on the body. It's I was going to say, yeah, it's really expensive. hard on the woman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, very expensive. Yeah. So, yeah. I think the key thing is 18 months that you said. That's really awesome because that um, to some people, especially with our instant gratification uh, generation, that that's way too long. But I think that's amazing what you said. Well, you won't even get it. You won't even get a diagnosis. You're not diagnosed. Anybody, any able-bodied woman and couple, whatever, you can't even get a diagnosis of infertility to after trying for a year. Yeah, that's interesting. That's, That's for couples with no problems. Some people right. just, you know, they have sex the first time, they have babies. Other people just takes takes longer, you know. So mm-hmm. Well, and it has so much to do with timing too and stuff like that, like what you're going through and the stress you're under. And there's like you said, every stress, person is so stress different. is huge. They used to not recognize that, but you you'd have all these anecdotal stories of people who couldn't get pregnant over years and they stopped trying and they adopted and then boom, they had a natural pregnancy after that. Yeah, you hear about that a lot. And yeah, also it's, it's, the fact that med- medicine recognizes that 95% of all diseases come from stress, yet, uh, right. you know, your reproductive system isn't influenced by that. Haha, <laughs> that's right. funny. No, no. So, yeah, I used to go to meetings, you know, for, for Resolve, which is a for folks who were trying to get over infertility. And I'd hear, hear these stories, and then I would hear that we're recognizing the influence of stress on your hormones and on your ovulation and, and all that. So, yeah, so we definitely have to take a holistic approach to to that. 
Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Dr. Tepper, we have one question that we would like to squeeze in. I know that we have taken up already almost an entire hour of your time and you just have so much information that we would love to keep you on all day. <laughs> but we have one question that we would like to ask that was sent in by an anonymous WAG of SCI. And her question is, Dear Dr. Tepper, my spouse has been very emotionally withdrawn from me and was diagnosed with early onset dementia, in addition to having an SEI. What resources can you recommend for me to heal from the loss of the emotional side of our sexual connection? How would you tackle that? Yeah, well, the first thing is you have to more 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 in the loss um right uh because it 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 is a loss i don't it's it's so hard you know it's the early onset dementia you know uh, it's so hard to kind of quantify exactly where her partner is right now but he has already been emotionally withdrawn you know so so i can imagine this person is feeling very alone in the relationship right and so the I think you have to kind of with without being being really close to the situation and figuring out if there is a way to improve on that connection um, which is you know um, it's probably more difficult if he was already withdrawn and now he's having the the, the dementia um so many people, and if the dementia gets worse, or partners of people with Alzheimer, are experiencing a lot of a lot of loss too of that connection. So I I think that um, number one is acknowledge the loss as as you're doing, uh, because you really have to accept before you can heal, um, and, uh, and nurture yourself. Um, take stock if you I don't know how long you were in a relationship but if the relationship was was good before your partner was emotionally withdrawn try to kind of remember uh, what what you had um, this is getting very touchy uh, in, in 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 what I'm gonna say next uh, but you might uh, find some emotional support and connection elsewhere um so that's that has to be done within the context of value systems and at what you know where where your partner is you know cause I, I know partners you know whose partners are in nursing homes and with this is more on could you hear more about alzheimer's and early stage dementia because it's it's more public, but where people actually they forget their partners and they are having affairs in the nursing home, right? So it's very painful for the partner without a memory loss to watch their partner not remember them and be hooking up with somebody in the nursing home. And so these are, but these are some of the realities of life, right? And so, you know, try to get emotional support as much as you can from 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 friends um uh take care of yourself sexually you know um 
So whether that's, you know, fingers, vibrator, whatever way, uh, but your, your sexuality doesn't have to be extinguished with the, with the relationship sexuality. Well, that's really good advice. That's really good advice. Thank you. I think that goes for a lot of people too, um, because there are a lot of women in our community that their partners are just withdrawn because they're depressed and they're just not into being sexual. And it goes for both sides too. Like the women who are caregivers sometimes just don't want to go there anymore. They're just, they're right. off limits because they're healing or they're not healing or whatever it is. They're just not in a state to enjoy sex. Right. And so. they've changed too. And I always, that fine line, you know, when you're a caretaker slash partner, you know, the, in the military, they call they call everybody caregivers. And I'm like, remember, caregivers are sometimes lovers too. But yeah, and so that that dual role, uh, the caregiving role, especially if it's it's a if it's a heavy, uh, you know, caregiving role, can can become overwhelming and burn out your sex drive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. 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 What a fully loaded episode today. (laughs) So much excellent information. Thank you so much. And now before we sort of wrap up, can you please share with us the festival that will be happening from from October 20th to the 22nd and what that is all about? Absolutely. It's the Lovabilities Virtual Sexuality and Disability Festival. Last year was our first, and we had 650 registrants. We overdid it last year. We did five days at like 10 to 12 hour days. Uh, the recordings, if you can't, if you can't make the sessions, they're recorded and available for 30 days. So this day, this year, we've, we've limited to three days, but we think after that, we're going to do, uh, you know, once every month. So day one, and this is for all disabilities, right? And, and able-bodied people too, because what we do is, I think, you know, helpful for, for everybody. So day one is, is focused all around relationships from, uh, developing your personal profile and online dating to logistics of dating someone with a disability to secrets of maintaining a relationship long term with someone with a disability. And this is, is revealed through research in people with neurodiversity, someone who did a study of 30,000 people on the autism spectrum. And then uh, issues about uh, safety, consent, and undoing what we call compliance training for people who are born with disabilities or been disability, have disabilities from youth and aren't given any agency, you know, to, to do. And then the day two focuses really on, you know, I call the logistics of sex. So there's going to be a pleasure focused sexuality education for adults first, and then erotic grab bag meets everyday pervertibles. And, you know, when I'm talking about the secrets and the logistics of sex, my formula is creativity or, or the ingredients are creativity, adaptability, and a sense of humor. So the erotic grab bag and the everyday pervertibles really helps you you know, spark your imagination and it's fun and, and it just leads to, you know, more creativity and, and good times. And then we're going to get into, which is, we haven't talked about that, but I've been doing a lot of teaching about tantric perspective to sex and we could do a whole different show on that. I've been doing that for 25, 30 years, but it's just become 
like the thing nowadays. But uh, the guy I learned from, this guy, Ray Stubbs, who happens to have a spinal cord injury now too, is going to be talking about four types of orgasms. There's many types of orgasms, but in energy. So this whole, and it's something, like I said, I've learned from him and, and I, and I describe orgasms as energetic orgasms. And uh, so he'll be talking about that. Uh, and then we're going to be talking here. We have somebody who interviewed me for Mashable, but she's a, a writer on adaptive technology. So this will be all of a, on adaptive technology for sexual self-pleasuring. And then Trish, who introduced you to me, is going to be a, doing a panel on surrogate partners. And then we're going to have a panel on kink. And then the last day is just what we call, you know, hot topics. Uh, in some countries, they're able to negotiate getting funding for sexual services through that. We're going to talk about legal issues. And we're going to have two sessions because another issue we get, uh, I get all the time as a, as a coach and an educator is, I'm looking at porn, am I an addict? So we're going to talk about, you know, uh, if it isn't sex or porn addiction, what is it and what to do about it? And then some stuff about porn literacy, about what really is happening. So we'll have a porn star talking about what's happening behind the scenes. So then we'll have a panel on body positivity and more on sex toys. So it's going to be a great three days. And uh, I encourage you all to sign up. Don't be thrown off if it's in pounds because my co-chair, Lorraine uh, Stanley, is in the UK. And that's where we set up the, uh, the Eventbrite page. So it'll get converted into whatever whatever money you use. So, mm-hmm. and, and what, how how much is that? Uh, sorry, how much is that uh, registration fee? Okay, so we the registration fee now is thirty six pounds. I don't know what it comes out into Canadian, okay. uh, uh, but that's for three days. And we did this last year. There's a link if you're on low income, you could come for free. So we appreciate people paying because wow. this is all volunteer and we got to cover the cost of the the, the, the hosting and the, all the accessibility accommodations and stuff like that. Uh, so we don't want people just to choose their free, but there's no means test. Uh, mm-hmm. So you go there and you could pay full price or you could ask for a free ticket. Oh, that's very cool. So in Canadian dollars, I think that's around $62 for registration. Yeah, that Um, makes sense. Yeah, so that's amazing. That's A lot of people are paying that per hour or two hours of of class or training. So this, we really wanted to keep it both accessibility, accessible from a technology standpoint, but also from a financial standpoint. But also it's like, where do you even get coaching in this? Like, that's the cool thing about this is like, it's so not available, this kind of stuff that $60, I mean, hello, that is well worth it. Like that's the amount of information that is just not available. Like nobody knows where to go for this stuff. And this is mostly by other people with disabilities. So yeah. That's very, very cool. Great, great thing to support. Maybe we'll do a ticket giveaway. Yeah, that'd be great. Get get somebody hooked up. This is awesome. This and such a plethora of resources. You guys have some really great topics. I mean, this is something that would interest, I think, both Brooke and I and our partners. Just really, really great. So, wow, wow, wow. You're an incredible human being. What can we say? 
Well, that's why I do these. That's why I do these, you know, podcasts and stuff, just to get compliments. <laughs> <laughs> I of course, you do. <laughs> I bet. Well, your wife is a very lucky lady to have you, and I'm sure you feel the same way to have her through all the supports and all the research yes. you've been doing throughout the years. So what an incredible partnership the two of you have. We have been absolutely delighted to have you on today, and there is no doubt in our minds that we will definitely be inviting you back okay. again. Right, Brooke? Yeah, definitely to talk about tantric sex because that's something that I'm very interested in. I feel like everybody should be interested in that, so mm-hmm. we would be more than happy to have you back at a later date when you're available. All right, thank you. Thank you very much. So once again, thank you for joining us. And we hope everybody has a beautiful rest of their week. And stay safe. Love one another. And we will see you next time.